Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Buy Property Podcast. This is a special one in many aspects. You know, a podcast turns, turns one year old. Can you believe it? It's been a fantastic year of navigating the intricate world of property investing together. And I thought I'll take a break from regular topics and dedicate this episode where we will take a stroll down the memory lane and revisit some of the most enlightened and impactful conversations and the guests that truly stood out amongst the crowd this past year. From decoding market trends to expert interviews and success stories, each episode has been a stepping stone towards financial empowerment through real estate. And I want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for sticking around and being part of this incredible journey. Now, as we reflect on this incredible journey, we want to express our heartfelt gratitude to our amazing listeners and viewers for making this podcast a cornerstone of Real Estate Insights. Not to forget our notable guests who made the podcast episode a lot more fun, enjoyable, and informative at the same time. So what have we learned on this journey? Some snippets around that you would shortly see, but let's have a look at some of the notable movements of our podcast this year. These are some of the guests who appeared on the podcast. So Hill, Cheryl, Goro, Cam. We had Win Jiang here sharing his own personal life experiences. We have we had Rob Moses here. We had Graham Whitfield, the renovation artist. We had Amol Kontale, Emma Holmes, the architect, Mike Day. Thank you, all the guests, you know, Rajan, Rex who came on the show and made this show a complete reality. So stay tuned and watch out some of the highlights of what we did, all the fun that we had in this 2023 year. We had the amazing lifestyle mentor Ving Yang on our podcast reaching out to our audience and sharing his life milestones and defining strategies like never before. Talk to us a bit about you know, your journey in relation to the keynote speaking. I know, you know, you, you know, tried and tried. You've shared one story where, you know, you flew from Australia, I think all the way to New York, I think from memory. Um, how did that, you know, the persistence that brings and, you know, comes out as a person who is trying to prove other wrong and going down this path of, you know, I know this is right and, you know, I'm going to prove to the world that, you know, this is the right path for me. It was, it was actually Los Angeles, right? Los and Angeles. Yeah. Again, the, the, more, the more ridiculous the dream, the more persistent and resilient you're going to have to be on the journey. <laughs> Definitely. And, and, Definitely. and a, career, a career in keynote speaking to me is one of the most outrageous dreams ever. And, and I love these kind of dreams and, and, and I, I give myself permission to dream. Yeah. So I, I remember to, to build my career in the US... I, at the start of my career, I used to tell my clients uh, in the US, and I didn't even have clients. I just had people who are kind of interested in me. I used to tell them, oh, yeah, yeah, I live in I live in Southern California. So if you want to book me, just let me know. It's okay. I live in Southern California. And and then I had a client ask me, they get, hey, Vin, we've got like a, uh, a $5,000 budget. Uh, yeah, you said you live in Southern California. Can you, can you speak at an event last minute? A speaker dropped out. Can you speak this Friday? And it was a Monday. And I was in Adelaide. <laughs> so I said to them, <laughs> 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I can. Yeah, of course. Yeah, just you know, just the drive. No worries. I'll, I'll see you Friday. <laughs> so I just literally booked a ticket, flew all the way over there, and did the talk. You know, and and it was, it was hard because at the time, a lot of the companies in America they they didn't want to book speakers outside of the US because you know they didn't want to pay all this travel, etc. Gosh. So I, I just remember flying back and forth to America on economy and. And and doing so ten times a year, just it was brutal building that career. And sometimes clients didn't even pay because I,、yeah. I said I'd do it for free. And that was me、yeah. getting the reps in and building a presence in the U.S. And definitely, and yeah, it was it was it was rough as guts. And how was the journey from Adelaide to U.S. and back to Adelaide? And what brought you back? Well, you know. After doing all of that in 2016, I, I, I I'm very grateful and, and thankful that I was I was able to build a really flourishing career in the U.S. So I moved to the U.S. in 2017 and stayed in the U.S. for four years. You know, and we somehow managed to build this incredible, incredibly fulfilling career as a speaker. And and in the end, Moss, I decided to come home because it was a quote my dad said to me too. And and my dad's someone who's very inspiring to me. And he he, he recognised that while I was building my career in the US and while I was achieving a, a lot of progress and success, I'd become really unhappy. And he said to me, he he said this this wonderful little line where he said, "A king that knows the limits to his desires will rule a lifetime." And and I'd become so greedy. I I'd, I'd become so greedy. I'd become so hungry for more. I'd become infatuated with more. That I'd lost track of what enough was, yeah. And no matter what level of my career I started hitting, Moss, I just wanted more. I wanted more. I wanted more. And I ended up being away from my family for two hundred days a year,、wow. and I was doing ninety to a hundred events a year, and become depressed. And and that quote that my dad shared with me, I'd become that king that you'd see sometimes in a in a in a in a war movie where it becomes so. Drunk on conquering, that they expand too quickly, and in the end,、yeah. their dynasty gets crushed and destroyed. And it, it's okay to be greedy and selfish at the start, right? Because that's the that's the fuel, that's the driver. Because if you don't have that, of course, then it's not going to take you where you want to get to. But you know, knowing the limits, where to stop, and where to find that balance, and you know, bringing yourself back, I think. That's the key thing, you know, finding your balance in life as to okay, what's important, what's not important anymore. It's quite the key, and I think people drive in that direction without knowing, without thinking. You know,、um, ultimately, what they say is, you know, there are things in life that you achieve, but it's always achieved at a at a peril of losing something on the way, along the way. You you know, you have to drop. You know, you look at the 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 rocket going up, and you know, as it goes up, it drops off everything. You know, so yeah, it just that's a good metaphor. You know, Yeah, so it's just a matter of you know how much, how far do you want to go, right? Well, you know, thank you for calling that out because you're right. You're right in that there are chapters of your life where you do need to be selfish, and it's okay to be selfish, and it's okay to to want more and 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 thank you for calling that out because that's one of the major differences between the mindset in the U.S. and Australia. You know, when being growing up in Australia, I I always felt bad wanting more. I always felt bad. That I want to be more successful. That I want to make lots of money. That I want to, 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 to have these things and this material thing and that material thing.、I、always felt bad. Whereas when I went to the US, they encouraged it and they said, "No, it's fine. 
You can have yeah. lots of impact in the world and make lots of money at the same time. And, yeah. and I kind of went, oh, wow, I never knew that was okay. I thought that if you make lots of money, you're a bad person. Yes. You know, so, so, so thank you for calling that out because for a period of my life, it was okay. It was, it was okay for me to do that. It was okay for me to want those things. And it, it was just that I did that for four years and I didn't recalibrate. You know, I, I didn't take the time to go, okay, is this still what I wanted? Should I just stay on this train? Yeah. And it was actually time for me to move on to the next journey in life. And again, the next chapter, right? And, and that's why I came home. I came home because I went, you know what? I think I know what enough is now. I, I think I know. And I think it's time to shift a little bit and write the next chapter. So I came home. Yes. And, and that's why everyone is so like, what the hell? Why did you come back what home happened? to Adelaide of all places? <laughs> yes, what happened? And, well, it's, you know, I've, my son, my son, his name is Xander. And, and at the time we moved back because he was about to start school. Dang. And I thought, you know what? I've had my fun chapter. I've had my incredible kind of epic chapter that I, that I got to play. This next chapter yeah. is about focusing on on the family, focusing on my wife now and, and, and my son. And well, my wife coming back to Adelaide was she was going to be around her friends and her family. And for me to be around my friends, my family, I'm like, okay, that was a fun rock star kind of chapter. Let's go yeah. into the, you know, the dad life chapter. You know, I'll, I'll get a van and I'll, I'll yes. yeah, be cool in a van. The maestro added the zing and spice to this episode with his life-changing experiences and journey. There was a few things that, that were the key catalysts, right? But my dad purchased a business when I was 15. And then my dad actively deciding, Goro, you're going to work in every single job in this business. And you're going to learn everything. And so it was a cash register company. And now it seems like the cash register company, there's not many jobs. We had the service division. We had the sales division. We had... We had at one stage 24 employees working. Wow. Right. So building cash registers. No, selling and servicing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And so there was, you know, there was, there's only three companies or two companies in all of Victoria that does that. And back in 97, everyone had, a, every shop needed a cash register. Right. And so that was one of the key catalysts. But the, one of the other catalysts was a family friend came over and still to this day, he tells a story. I was apparently on my laptop doing work and I'd come in to the kitchen, grabbed a bite to eat and said a moderate high and walked back out. He's like, apparently I had a chat to my parents saying, what's wrong with your son? Is everything okay? <laughs> right. And he was like, he like ignored me. I was on the computer and like, you know, and his brother-in-law was like my best friend in Dubai where I grew up. Mm. And so, you know, obviously my parents did a few things after that because they valued his opinion. He's, um, you know, he's a very inspirational man. And so one of the other things dad did was start getting me into property and business events, which he was attending when I was 16, right? So, and then as a consequence of that, one of my roles in the cash register company, and this is a trial by fire, I was going door to door as a 16-year-old, having to build rapport with a shopkeeper and sticking stickers on the cash register where they keep all their freaking money <laughs> and selling them paper rolls or, or cash registers and things like that. Because, you know, we were doing a lot. We, uh, one of our main income streams was consumables. Yeah. Right. And so I built myself up in from a complete introvert to having to be able to, I guess, straddle that line into extrovert when I needed to. Yeah. At that time. Yeah. And so. And was it hard? So it was hard. <laughs> nothing nothing worth doing is easy, right? 100%. Right? 
Um, and you need that one person to push you, right? I, I still remember, like, you know, when I first came to Australia, right? Biggest introvert in the world. My first job was a petrol station, you know, at, at a petrol station. Of course it was. Um, and, and yeah, there's the biggest theorem, right? But hey, look at me here, right? And it's it's so funny, like the, the business owner there, and I, I talk about this story in my book as well, right? Uh, the business owner there, his name is still Eddie. I still talk to him right now, right? Like still these days. It was a BP station on Sydney Road. I still remember. I still go past and I show my kid that I used to work here. Anyways, that guy had this this line, Moss, don't be a banana. You know, have s***. You know, that's all he, every time he would say this to me, right? And it just... It seeped into my head, right? Don't be a banana, like in in his Egyptian accent, right? And uh, basically, that was the push that I needed. Basically, I remember there was a junkie that came in in the petrol station once, completely drugged out, drunk, and I switched off the petrol station. I was so scared of telling him off and asking him to that I turned off the lights and I closed the petrol station for the whole night. Like seriously, no sale at all. And this is on Sydney Road petrol station, right? Wow. And he came up in the morning and he didn't fire me. And he gave me the biggest lecture of his life. He's like, you are a f- you know, excuse my French. You are, you know, X, Y, and Z. And you're because the guy was so out of whack that he stayed there all night. And he was there in the morning at like seven. He took me out with holding my hand and he said, slap him. And I was like, no, I'm not slapping him. He's like, no, slap him because this is how you're going to learn. And so I, I shook him up and I said, man, you need to go. Like in the nicest possible way, I didn't slap it, but that was the push. Like, so everyone has that turning point, right, in their life. And so, from your story's perspective, how did that change? Like, when you talk about, you know, going to those property seminars, those, you know, how did all of that started feeling real and, you know, moving into this space? Well, you know, it almost starts as a journey from my first property. Yeah. And so, I went to all these property seminars, I was reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I'd, I'd, I'd bought in. I was all into this philosophy, right? And dad was buying properties. He'd, he'd purchased like four or five properties within the one year, wow. knowing all these strategies. And I was doing, you know, I'd actually started another business within dad's business, doing the computerized point of sale, nice. which is what everyone does, right? Touchscreens. Yeah. So, you know, that was doing well. And then, oh, that's it. You're doing so well. You basically got your own business. You're 17. We want to give you a gift for your 18. Right, sure. and they said you've got a choice. We can buy you this dream car, this Lexus coupe you've been dreaming of, <laughs> and this beautiful pearl white Lexus on the background of my computer screen. Like everyone had seen it, they knew I was. Ta- I, I talked to everyone I knew about it. Or we can pay for your deposit on your first property. Nice. And as much as it was hurt, a car, no, I'm just kidding. Of course, <laughs> it was the first property. Now that wasn't the best property purchase. I learned a thing or two from that purchase. Yes. But it got me in the game. Yeah. And it got me, you know, responsible for my financial outcome. Of course. And how old were you at that time? 17. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So I had a mortgage by the time that, that it was an off-the-plan property, mm-hmm. an apartment in the CBD, which yeah. I'd never do again. Our very own Sohail Merchant, the taxation expert, shared his expertise with our audience, giving the first-hand information about dos and don'ts regarding taxation. From investment property perspective lots of people don't think about land taxes land tax they pay uh, on the property it is tax deductible body corporate fees uh, it is deductible as well borrowing expense is one of the major one people don't realize that they can claim borrowing expenses uh, as a deduction for their investment property though it is over five years 
but law it involves the cost of establishment of loan facility discharge fee broker fees loan admin fees valuation fees and LMI as well loan mortgage insurance it's part of your borrowing expense so you can claim those expenses for your rental property borrowing expenses are an interesting one right i think people don't tend to see borrowing expenses because when the loan settles these are usually hidden on their statements or bank statements they don't even show up on their bank accounts because you know the bank would usually offset this against your loan and it would be a single number that would usually show up and so it's important that you know you hold on to those statements you know especially when you're talking about lenders mortgage insurance establishment fees broker fees valuation fees all of these fees do amount to a big amount of money you know these these are not small chunks right especially when you are buying properties at say 88% LVR or 90% LVR that's true that's true sir it is uh, somewhat hidden so it is if it, you have a good accountant they can ask for settlement statement and put that information in the tax return definitely definitely what about home office expenses i know there is a lot of contention around this and when you mention this to a tax agent it would be like oh i'm not sure whether you should be claiming any home office expenses talk us through about there yeah so it is it it, it is a hangover deduction from uh covid areas uh, covid uh, times uh, when people used to work from home and uh, ato allowed lots of uh, ato allowed people to claim lots of home office expenses there there were different methods but and people is still trying to claim home office expenses though it is still possible but it's not as much as you would do it previously but yeah if you are still working from home you claim certain expenses including some occupancy costs uh, of your house interest expense and rates and other utilities and things like that there yeah you need to work out the basis of deduction but yeah you can still claim home office expenses as long as you're working from home either part time full time doesn't really matter you can still claim those expenses in today's time you would see that you know an average australian is at least working 2 days or 3 days a week from home right so there is a lot of stuff that they can claim especially like when you talk about running property as a business you know you couldn't be exposing yourself to a lot of this money that you are spending on you might have a full scale office that you might have created you know i know developers tend to do that a lot where you know they would have um, you know their garage converted into a, a home office potentially right and so there is a, a you know that's leaving money on the table if you're not considering some of these expenses as well that's right that's true now i understand that you know when you talk about property investing people tend to you know set up trusts and you know set up companies and discretionary trusts and family ex all of these things you know there's a lot of deduction that comes together with that as well isn't it that people don't really think about you know yeah especially um the the, the setup costs uh, of setting up to those kind of structures they 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 usually don't tend to claim those expenses because the trust is not established for example as yet but they are they, you can claim the, these kind of expenses as establishment cost later on again they they call sunk cost or black hole expenditure but you can claim them in future over 5 years or whatever yeah there there's a way to claim that kind of expense there uh, legal fees legal uh, expenses involved in managing all uh, the finance side of things or documentation side of things you can claim those expenses agents fees buyers agents sellers sellers agents fees or sellers agents part of the uh, cost base anyway so buyers agent fee you can claim Uh, as long as connected to your portfolio investment advice you can claim that as a deduction if it is just straightforward just one buyer agent fee related to one property then it goes into 
as a capital expense, not as a as a, a normal deduction. But yet, there are certain expenses you can claim in your trust as well, which you should be ke- keeping records of. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about the tools and equipments and the you know the subscriptions that you know people tend to get to these days as well. You know, people tend to spend a lot of money in in that sort of space. What are the rulings around the or, around there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, with regards to tools of trade, what whatever you spend to in in order to um, earn your income, you spend money on your tools in the IT based client, for example, the the, the IT based a work environment where you're working from home and you need laptop to work that becomes your tools of trade so you can claim deduction. Cheryl Leon discusses the intricacies which can help anyone to have a successful property portfolio. If we take the next step, it's also about understanding where does your portfolio sits right now. And so of course, you know, as a part of the property plan, you would you should do that. You should assess where your property portfolio sits. But a lot of people fall into this policy of holding properties forever fingers crossed hoping to the gods of property that the property is going to grow right and so ultimately the next step in you know asking these questions to you is you know does my portfolio needs to change does it needs any remedy does it needs anything different you know what is my portfolio needs right now is a very important question yeah this is incredibly important i feel you know there i, I do see that there's a camp for holding property forever right and then there is another camp which is a bit more transactional which camp are you are you in okay i think every property has its own um way of telling like there are there are key indicators that would tell you how long do you need to hold property for i always treat property as an another investment class right and so the transactional nature of property investing may be different to shares, you know, because you buy and sell shares with the time frame of, of a day or two or a month. Cryptos is minutes and hours, right? Property might be six or seven or eight years. And so if you've got that 70, 80% growth in the first six, seven years, why don't you sell and basically move on and do it again, right? Ultimately, how fast you want to grow your pro- property portfolio depends on that, right? But you don't have to do it forever. You know, I think if you have a good seven to eight year run in your property portfolio, making the right decisions, even wrong decisions, but identifying the wrong decisions and correcting it quickly, you would get to where you want to get to. A lot of people fail because they make a mistake and they wait for that mistake to correct automatically. And so they don't really treat their property as a business or their property journey as a business. You know, they treat this truly as a passive income. And so, you know, like any other business owner, you know, you find a person who is non-performing, you're not going to wait for them to, you know, one day wake up in the morning and have this sort of dawning on them that they are going to be the high performer in the team, right? Property is exactly that. It's not performing. You move on, you know, cut your losses, move on. What are some of the key things to look out for when when it's a, a red flag about your portfolio needing to be corrected? Look, typically... Um, and we've done this episode, you know, previously, I think we talked about this property portfolio fixer and it's sitting on my website as well that asks you structured questions as to, okay, about each and every property, you know, whether that needs to sell or not, you know, and the first and the most important question is how long have you held this property for? Has this property grown in value? If it's not grown in value, is it going to grow in value? What key indicators are going to are you going to look at to give you that confidence that it's going to grow in value? 
if it's going to grow in value, can you sell it without causing any losses to you and come out of it? If you can't sell it as is, can you create an exit strategy for yourself? You know, could you, you know, change the configuration, do a subdivision or something along the lines, you know, to uplift the value to give you a clean exit? What does that look like over the next six months, 12 months? What is the opportunity cost at that price point? You know, if you're holding a million dollar property that's not grown in value because, you know, it's next to train lines and power lines with the big massive easement running through the property. What is the benefit of you holding this property? You know, how much are you losing as an opportunity cost? And so all of these questions are very structured questions. And so when I talk about that property portfolio fixer, that basically gives you a single snapshot that these questions you should ask about every property every time you're going to buy the next property for the property portfolio that you have. And that would give you a really clear direction whether this property is going to give you the benefit that you really want in your investment property life cycle or you should just move away and cut your losses and onto something else. Yeah, and I know we we did that years ago when we first bought negative gear property. It was so cool at the time. And and one of the negative gear properties was in um, a one-bedroom studio. And I went, I don't think it's going to perform very well. Yeah, with, with it, it, it increased a little bit. We got some income out of it. But it was, we found that there were more apartments being built. It was getting older. We got a, you know, strata and things like that. So that, that for me was a clear indicator that, that, uh, you know, that property needed to be disposed of and, and it allowed us to go into other things. So I don't necessarily think that you need to hold property all the time, but I do think that you should assess and make all the right sort of checks to see if you you know are there different ways to increase the yield are there different ways to to so that you can hold on to it and, and take advantage of any equity equity increase but yes you need to be able to assess that the important thing also is that when you're thinking about your property plan right your property portfolio is not going to always require growth you know, if you're 55 year old, you don't care about growth, right? You're like, who cares? You know, or you're 60 years old, you don't care about growth. You'd be like, well, you know, if I'm going to wait another 10 years, I'll probably die, right? Touch wood, God forbid. And so the, the thinking mechanism changes like people, and I'm not trying to be negative here. I'm trying to, you know, take a very extreme position around this. But, you know, naturally people favor different things at different times, right? So when I'm young, I'll be focused more on growth because I want to scale my property portfolio. I'm making enough money. I don't care about saving. I'm going to reinvest continuously. And so I'm going to take more risks. As you mature, you have a family in place, you know, your money going out because of the outlays in relation to expenses, you would favor more towards, you know, uh, cash coming back into your property portfolio, but you still want that growth. And so that balance needs to be there. As you grow towards your maturity or towards retirement, you start focusing more on, you know, cash flow coming back. You know, you're like, well, net wealth is great, but, you know, I'm not going to really, this is me now talking about generational wealth, right? This is, I'm not going to use this. You know, if I have a $10 million portfolio that only generates $50,000 in net income, then what good is it doing me, right? Developments, strategies, luxurious property setups, all summed up in this episode with our exclusive guest, Mike Day. There's different models where you can bring in serviceability and because build costs have elevated, 
30, 40% in the last few years since we acquired my current project. I'm having to completely pivot the business model now. And where I'm looking is is our biggest cost is because I can't bring the build cost down. It's going to take a few years and I can't just sit on my thumbs and have no revenue for a few years because build costs are too high waiting for them to come down. So we go to the other largest cost in our project, which is finance, because in these large luxury, you know, projects, you could be looking at 1.5 million in interest just on the land, you know, depending on how long you need to hold it for. And your negotiation strategy on the land price becomes a, a, a push and pull, give take with the vendor on how much settlement time can you give me to offset costs in, in interest so that I can give you the highest possible price to appease them, right? Because there's a direct relationship and vendors don't typically understand that and they just want short settlement and the highest price. And it, so those can be difficult and challenging, but what I'm finding is is now we're gonna pivot and I'm, I'm now beginning a new research phase of the business to bringing on potentially and changing funding models. I, I still want to use the private space. My current lender has been incredible. I'm not going to say who they are here, but you know, if anyone wants to contact me and ask further questions, I, 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 I'm happy to recommend them. My experience has been exemplary, but it's a higher cost model. And he knows that. And he's actually, and, and they're actually sourcing a different type of funding to reduce costs for people because they can see the, the same thing I'm seeing, which is build costs are escalating. And I really want to build a future partnership with these guys, but you know, it, it'll be a case by case deal. So the pivot that we're looking to make is potentially bringing on a serviceability partner who has that higher net income, who could service five to $8 million loans. And that, what that does folks is, is that lowers your cost base in the finance. So in private finance with a lot of cash, you can capitalize all your fees. There's not a lot of upfront costs to you as, as the borrower because all those fees get capitalized into the loan and paid out at settlement but there is a chunk of money that you need to like outside of all the cash you spend on the development there's a chunk of money that you need to deposit into their trust account to put up front as security and then i think what they do i, I mean i'm just i'm just guessing here because they say it's capitalized to the end and 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 then the line fees are billed monthly but at the end of the day like in our case, we put up about a million dollars and surely he's paying out his investors some upfront costs on their returns, you know, to keep them happy to go into an 18 month deal with some of that money, or he's deploying it elsewhere and, and, and going from there. I, that's his business. But at the end of the day, the, the, the private space allows you to capitalize. So you don't need to pay upfront fees. They capitalize all that into the loan. Just like lenders mortgage insurance when you're buying your PPR, some lenders will capitalize that so you don't have to shell out like 20 grand on top of stamp duty or something for a, you know, a, a, a million dollar purchase. So just one more thing to add for the users and listeners. I think, of course, you know, from a private equity perspective, it would make a lot more sense for them to capitalize, right? Because there is no serviceability in there. So ultimately, they're giving you the money. And if they give you more which they want it coming back to them, they might as well not give it to you in the first place, right? And so naturally their thinking is that, well, this is the interest that is going to come back to us anyway. Why give it to them in the first place? We'll just hold it and call it capitalization, right? And so banks do it quite safely and securely because there is a lot more collateral. There is a lot more serviceability. They'll check your income. They'll check 10,000 different things. 
um, to capitalize that income. But from a serviceability partner perspective, of course, that's the risk that they're managing by keeping that money. Yes, you're right in saying that, you know, they, they might be earning returns elsewhere, or, you know, providing returns to their own investors as well, because ultimately these are managed funds. So, you know, really good point. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, what you're doing is is you're, you're, you're avoiding serviceability, you're avoiding income testing. So the way we structure things is like I would take directorship and, and, and look at things so that there's only one captain of the ship. You know, when you go to take loans and you have eight captains and eight directors, it really complicates the loan process. You There's a lot of serviceability you know, or like they'll want to delve into every person. So we, we've created a structure of a company that bought the land and then a company that houses the investors. So we didn't have, even though there was a unit trust here, we didn't have the investors investing directly into that unit trust. We had another layer of protection for them down in a separate company where we issued the shares and everything else. And then and then there was only a single shareholder in the company that owned the land, which was the shareholding company. So, and they just owned the units. And then it all fragmented from there. Our prestigious guest here discusses the balance between family and work and how time can be managed easily. What's really good about the industry is it does require a, a mentorship program for a couple of years. So if someone is new to industry, never worked as a mortgage broker beforehand, they would need to be under a uh, a mentor agreement, basically, which allows them to be able to learn on the job. But there's obviously a lot of people that are interested in the industry. There's a capacity to earn a lot of money. But I think for the majority of mortgage brokers, a lot of them that are coming into the industry might not necessarily have worked in a bank beforehand or have financial knowledge. So I think that's really important. You want somebody who has an understanding of what they're doing in this field. And I've I've spent a lot of time speaking to a lot of mortgage brokers from a variety of different walks in life. I think this is just me ballparking it, but 70 to 80% of them might not necessarily have had that exposure in that industry beforehand before becoming a mortgage broker. Yeah. And it's it's interesting, right? You talk about mentorships and mentor programs, right? It, it depends on what your mentor is good at as well, right? Your mentor might be good at just vanilla house and land packages or just, you know, refinance applications. You know, they might not have that breadth of experience. And so while the mentor program is great, you know, it just gives you that edge in those particular fields. And, you know, when, when I see you know, mortgage brokers, you know, testing out on clients, right? You know, typically look what the buyers agents does right now. They don't have a portfolio of their own. They don't have anything of their own. And they're going out, you know, finding investment properties or finding, you know, development properties for other people. Typically, I can compare that and use that analogy for mortgage brokers as well, where they haven't done a lot of these new loans. And so they're treating into open waters if they don't have that experience of their own if they're not exposed to some of these it's a bit of a chicken and egg story i understand because look i mean unless and until you get the experience you're not going to get there and so how do you make sure that you get that breadth of experience and you know could potentially be that one of the things could be that you know you work for a bigger brokerage or you work for or you tie and team up in a strategic partnership in such a way that you know you focus on your niche but you work together with someone in a different niche on a on a very like for like basis on a continuous formation so that you know you're learning the ropes of this new niche before you start writing some of that business as well what are your thoughts on you know these these mortgage brokers and the flood of mortgage brokers and you know while you know you can have a really good friend you know that necessarily does not mean that you know he's the best or he or she is the best person to just manage your finances 100 100 look i think 
one of the uh, mentorship challenges at the moment as well is that you can have someone who's worked at a bank come in, be uh, who's worked as a bank as a, as a lender per se, and come into the environment as a mortgage broker without having to serve that mentorship agreement, right? And that's challenging because if you've been working in a bank for say seven or eight years and then coming out into the broker world, you might not have that exposure with, you know, 40, 50 different banks that we can offer. So there's a bit of a challenge there and a bit of a disconnect in regards to people that are moving from banks to becoming mortgage brokers. And I think especially with the, as someone who's worked at a big bank for a number of years before stepping out myself, with the changes in commission structures within the banks following the Royal Commission, a lot of people are becoming mortgage brokers because they see it as a more viable way to make similar kinds of income that they might have made six, seven years ago, basically. I think it's important to, with, with I guess, I, I find, especially when doing loans for people that are my friends or family members, is that it can be a little bit, I don't know if it would be the word disconnect would come about, but you get a very in-depth view in the way that people live, and it can be a good thing and a bad thing, right? Once you've gone there and you've done that for that person, you know more about them than most anyone else in the world, maybe even more than their spouses know. So yes, yes. They say you have to be very careful from the doctors, lawyers, and the mortgage brokers, right? Because you're opening up your complete life to these people. So, hundred percent, I I could totally see that. But it's also important to understand that you know a lot of these new people who are coming in, it's almost like you know there needs to be a prerequisite that you have been exposed to lending, right? I see a lot of accountants turning up into mortgage brokers. I see a lot of you know people working in you know a payable role or a receivable role in a big corporate or just a financial accountant turning into a mortgage broker because yes you know there is a parity between the two but the skills are not transferable is that isn't that right 100% 100% i mean what i do requires a lot of different hats to put on right so obviously you're a tax accountant but you're not a tax accountant you're a real estate agent but not a real estate agent you're a financial analyst, but not a financial analyst. You need to maintain client relationships. You also need to be able to speak to banks, build rapport. So there's a lot of different hats that you need to be putting on at a, at a variety of different times. So I think if you've done one segment and you've done really well, maybe it's the tax side of things. Yes, you might be able to understand that side of it, but you might not necessarily be able to understand the lending side of it. How to be able to, I guess, work with different policies with different banks so you're right, there's a lot of people that are transferred from other industries to becoming mortgage brokers that might be able to do one side of it really well, but not necessarily capture all of it. Rashad Siddiqui talks in great wavelength about the boundaries that are blurred in the society when it comes real estate market. My biggest issue with, you know, the the, the, the media hype in relation to NDIS is that the media quotes that 18% of, you know, Australian population is disabled right now. Ridiculous number of 18%. That basically... 4.3 million. Yeah. And so that basically says that one in every five Australian is disabled. Okay. And so my natural thinking is, of yes, that number, you know, could be right. But, you know, these boundaries of mental, mental illness and these boundaries of disability have been blurred out completely. You know, what is a disabled person in today's time is different to what a disabled person was when this policy was first announced in 2016, yes. right? Yes. So, um, it's it's a, it's a typical example of, you know, what we call it or people have been calling it as an over-medicalization of, you know, normal household problems, right? So, yeah. you know, the whole idea and then uh, of, you know, having an NDIS or NDIA was basically, you know, people just to support people who are truly, truly disabled. You know, you hear people who are, you know, losing confidence in today's time or opting out of work um, and finding it too difficult. Or even like in some cases, I'm going to talk a bit more extreme, you know, drug addictions, you know. Got it. Uh, which would have been given a completely different, you know, medical description before. 
all of them are now you know classified as disabled, disabled right yeah, and so yeah. this is an attraction of a lavish lifestyle you know that's how i would say and probably you know people are going to tarnish my reputation for me saying this but you know naturally that's what's happening right you know from an sda provider it is and, it is and, and this is unfortunate in this market that and that's very fine line right people coming from the drug addict and then they're getting proven by the their their doctors that become disabled and they're falling into that luxury lifestyle right and as you said this is this is very fine line where the system get abused by certain you know people or community i would say um, and that's that's where the things goes dirty yes. but again if we if and and that's that's what we are trying to avoid we are together coming and and trying to help that community actually they need properties they need home they need to get out from those uh, disability share homes and all Definitely. the places so we can provide the best possible services Definitely. um and we don't want to entertain those people who uh, who have that sort of mental thought that yes, yes you know i can claim the disability i can you know take their luxury life yeah no we're not providing we're not helping we're dealing directly with the hospital people definitely we're dealing directly with the people uh, actually the need they've already got the plans approved yeah. for their funding because mm. they are disabled they yeah. need support i think the important thing here is that if you go back to the base case scenario of why ndis was set up right ndis was a promise to australians made to support these special people to ensure that they get the best life of their choosing right correct, and so correct you look at these leakages you look at these budget blowouts you know it's because that these lines are blurred it's because of this definition of a disabled person is now so loose and you know people who are taking advantage and actually it's the truly disabled people who is being disadvantaged out of all of these you know equations and so it's very very important to understand you know what the whole idea and the niche is and this segues us into more of a government funding you know government backed and we've talked about this before as well that you know while there is massive government funding attached to it you know an average in the icrcpn in today's time gets about $55,000 which is double the age pension in today's time right correct correct and so yes. the scheme is set up skewed towards the services yes housing is a small part of it but ultimately the scheme was set up to ensure that the disabled people you know could be brought back into workforces you know could provide a, a healthy lifestyle you know basically that's what the whole idea and the niche of ndis properties was Correct. it's a both ways like when when this scheme came into the effect it works both ways because the government helping uh, those people then investors because they they're happy to pay their the rental contribution yeah. but also being investing you um coming to the market and building a home you actually helping government back as well because then government taking those participants the living in the hospitals they they don't want them to be in hospital right they want them to get well soon and then you know move to the house they can live comfortably yes. right yes. their own life yes. so we helping each other and that's that's where the definitely. entire definitely uh, scheme uh, was introduced for yes and so uh, you know the the point that i'm trying to make here is that you know when you talk about government back schemes you know as these leakages and blowouts and the pressure builds up you know the government either limits the scheme or comes out of the scheme very quickly and and this is a typical example where they had the cut off this time june where all the properties of endress properties would basically you know roll off it's not that you know if it's an endress property is going to stay there and they're not going to you know allow new endress properties all they are saying is that those properties who are there no more benefit attached with that's it and so Correct. imagine if something of that extension happens to ndis properties and all of these tenants that are sitting in there 
you can't charge them the amount of money that you want to charge to these people. You can't charge no, the normal no, tenancies in place. And so, you know, from my perspective, that's the biggest risk attached to the NDI space. And people who are investing should not truly be only investing from a dollar perspective. They should think about the social enterprise element of this. And, you know, the government's lens of, you know, who the dis- disabled person is or tightening that definition could mean that, you know, instead of one in, you know, every five Australians having access to this, you know, NDIS schemes, you know, it could be one in 20 or one in 10. And that's where the market really, the mature market would really disintegrate in some, you know, in some areas or some cases where there is, you know, higher supply, lower demand. I'm going to also announce that, you know, we'll be back with a bang in 2024 with the season two. We are planning and executing the season two of the podcast better than before with new topics, industrial insights and guests that would make you stay hooked till the last seconds. Some of the topics that we have planned for in this second season is real estate's best keep secrets around strategies and we'll talk about real life scenarios and strategies. We'll we'll explore sophisticated investment strategies such as value-add projects, intricate financing methods, intricate structures and how do you structure yourself as well. We'll also talk about expanding, we'll talk about regulatory landscapes, investment opportunities, We'll give a lot more insights around success stories and seasoned guests, you know, who will talk about diverse market outcomes and real estate insights, who will share their own experience and expertise. We'll we'll dwell into advanced risk assessment and mitigation strategies. We'll talk about effective portfolios, how to scale up and strategize property portfolios and unforeseen challenges in the property development world. We'll talk about options, commercial properties, and the market disruptions and innovation tech that is out there that is going to hit the Australian shores very soon. So stay tuned for season two. Thank you for listening to me. Take care, stay safe, keep smiling, keep investing. This is Moss checking out. Adios.